All right, guys, welcome back to Human Geo, AP Human Geo in 20 minutes. I'm your host, Mr. Linder. Uh, this is the final episode of AP Human Geo in 20 minutes uh, for the Unit 7 Urbanization Test. Um, so let's go ahead and get started one final time. Uh, just going through the uh, study guide here, um, talking about urbanization uh, of MDCs versus LDCs. Um, in MDCs, most people live in urban areas. In the United States, we became more urban than rural in the 1920s. Um, however, most of our population lives in the suburbs. Um, we have less population in, in major cities. Uh, in European cities, though, uh, you've got more people to live in the inner cities and less people to live in the suburbs. Um, in LDCs, uh, you do have more people that are rural than urban. Um, but you also started to see uh, a growth of cities in LDCs. Um, some of the largest cities in the world are in LDCs, and in fact, those are where the fastest-growing cities in the world are in the world uh, are in uh, LDCs. Um, megacities versus world cities. Um, megacities are just cities that have more than 10 million people. Um, world cities are cities that are connections of uh, high-level industry, pop culture, government, and that sort of thing. So the three major world cities, and then it, there's like a hierarchy to it, but the three major world cities are New York, London, and Tokyo. Um, you know, beneath that, you have cities like Los Angeles and uh, Paris and Moscow and Beijing. So still some very major cities, but um, when you're talking about like the finance industry, popular culture, um, government, that sort of thing, uh, London, Tokyo, and, and New York. Um, distinctions between urban and rural. Uh, again, in the United States, we have a lot of different ways to distinguish that. Um, we came up with the definition of a city. Um, cities had annexations where they could add different neighborhoods into their city, add land kind of piecemeal. Um, we uh, talked about MSAs, metropolitan statistical areas that are places that have at least 50,000 uh, inhabitants um, and how they kind of overlap in certain places, especially on the East Coast of the United States. Um, whereas rural, uh, obviously you're looking more at like a, a clustered rural settlement or a dispersed rural settlement, um, places like, uh, farmland in the Midwest, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, central business districts historically and today, um, historically that was where you had all the high range, high threshold, uh, stores. That's where most people went to do business. That's where most people's jobs were. Um, that's where most people did their shopping uh, and that sort of thing as well. Um, with the invention of the car, the interstate highway system, uh, the shopping mall and that sort of thing, um, a lot of shopping in central business districts has died out. Um, and it's more focused on servicing the, uh, the businesses that are already located there. So you have um, like some high-end retailers for, you know, uh, people that need uh, that, that sort of clothing. You'll have dry cleaners, you'll have business supply stores and that sort of thing. Um, CBDs today are also uh, changing in that they're trying to draw more uh, younger, uh, more educated people downtown. Um, so they have more cultural amenities. Uh, they have more um, sports stadiums. They have more breweries. They have more uh, arts and music and that sort of thing. Cultural things that are going to um, try to attract uh, those people with uh, high incomes and not a lot of kids downtown. Um, spatial organization of cities, we looked at several models. Um, I need to add one on here, actually. Um, 
yeah, we'll add the Latin American model. Anyways, um, starting with what's on here now, uh, the concentric zone model. So first of all, the first two models, the concentric zone model and the second model, are both based off the same city. They're both both based off of Chicago. Um, and so these are geographers, uh, um, early urban geographers were trying to kind of figure out how cities grew and changed and how they were organized. Um, and so the first one is the uh, the Burgess concentric zone model. I believe around 1923 is when Burgess came up with this model. The idea is that I have five zones, numbered one through five, one being the CBD, all the way out to five being the commuter zone. Uh, two is the industry and transportation. Uh, three is lower class housing. Four is middle class housing. And five, like I said, is, is far out from, from the city. Um, but they're in concentric circles kind of around um, that, that CBD, that central CBD. Uh, the sector model, uh, who is, which was created by Hoyt in the 1930s. Um, that actually is, it uses the same uh, basic zones that the concentric zone model uses. You still got um, high class, uh, you still got middle class, you still got um, the CBD and, and industry and all that stuff, but it's, it's more like wedges. It's more like slices of, of, of a pizza. And so the middle um, of the pizza is the, is the central business district. You know, most people live in middle-class housing. So we could say like, Three of the pizza slices are middle class housing. Two of the, you know, if you got an eight eight slice pizza, three are middle class housing. Two are low class housing. One is high class housing, and two is, um, you know, like industry and transportation. Uh, then we got the multiple nuclei model, which says that there are kind of like multiple nodes um, that are going to attract people and businesses and services for for different reasons. Um, so one of those one of those nodes definitely is the central business district um, in, in the heart of the city. But then you've got you know airports and you've got malls and you've got uh, industrial suburbs and things like that that are also going to attract people. So you have kind of these different nodes that are spread around the uh, the city. Um, then we've got the peripheral model, and the peripheral model was uh, invented in the 19. 40s, uh, late 1940s, early 1950s, and it takes into account uh, the developing interstate highway system, especially the idea of the beltway loop, and the idea that you do have the CBD and you do have um, a structure of uh, residences and that sort of thing within the beltway loop, but then you also have um, you know peripheral nodes that pop up off of the beltway, uh, and that makes sense, especially where we live, um, looking at a place like Tyson's Corner, or a place like Bethesda or Silver Spring or any of these places that are nodes that are kind of right around the 495 ring that rings the city of D.C. Um, we also looked at uh, Latin American cities and the Latin American model, the idea that with the CBD, you also have a central marketplace. Um, you have a uh, like a spine of high class uh, settlements that go from the CBD all the way out to the periphery. But then um, with Latin American cities, kind of similar to European cities, most of the wealth is located within the city, not in the suburbs. And the suburbs in Latin American cities are called favelas, which are um, like squatter settlements. So it's places that uh, are, you know, usually have high crime, um, not a lot of education, not a lot of running water, not a lot of services, uh, garbage disposal, electricity, um, that sort of thing. All right, inner city problems. Um, first of all, we have always had um, inner city problems. We've always had, always had issues with uh, racism and that sort of thing. There's always been segregation about where different people are living. Um, certain uh, groups within cities, so you have uh, banks that will engage in redlining, 
where they will only uh, lend to certain types of people in certain neighborhoods. And then you have um, real estate companies that do the same thing, but it's called blockbusting, where they will, they will only sell to certain groups of people in certain areas. And so that helps keep our cities segregated. And our cities are, are very segregated, um, no matter what part of the country, north, south, east, west you are in, um, most of our neighborhoods are segregated. And we do get that sometimes by uh, de facto segregation. People want to settle around people that are similar to them, especially new immigrants that may not speak English. They want to be around people um, that speak their language. And that has been true of uh, immigrants to the United States going back to the beginning of our history. Um, it's where you get uh, places like Little Italy and Chinatown in different uh, neighborhoods around, uh, around the country because people want to be close to people that are like them. But we also do have... Um, segregation that is uh, that is of the legal and illegal brand. Um, legal in being that at one point it was legal to segregate people based on their skin color. Now, obviously it is not, um, but uh, banks and real estate agents in, in certain cases will still engage in that um, anyways. Uh, you also had uh, with the great migration of African-Americans north, um, kind of at the end of World War II and, and prior to World War II, you had uh, white Americans who then left the cities and moved to the suburbs, and that was known as white flight. Um, couple that with the invention of the interstate highway system and the automobile, and it made it a lot more practical for people to move out to the suburbs. Um, uh, we also have uh, economic issues. As uh, people and jobs left those cities, those cities were kind of hollowed out. Their tax base was eroded. Um, and so that's when you get area uh, cities that had high crime, violence, um, failing schools and things like that, because uh, not only do the people leave, but the businesses left. And when people and businesses leave, it's hard to collect taxes. Um, and if it's hard to collect taxes, then you're not going to have good running water. You're not going to have good streets. You're not going to have good schools. Uh, you're going to have food deserts, uh, which I believe uh, became an FRQ. Um, where people don't have access to high quality nutrition um, anywhere close to them. Uh, and so those are all kind of economic issues that stem from, from those inner city problems. With urban renewal, as I mentioned earlier, many cities are starting to reinvest in their downtown areas. Um, you have many um, people with no kids or small children who are moving back into the cities because they like the amenities, they like being close to work, they, not, like, they like not having a car. Um, they like riding bikes instead of uh, to work instead of taking a car. They like taking public transportation. So all these things are drawing uh, a tax base. They're drawing businesses um, back to the city, which is um, causing some good things to happen. Uh, this whole idea of new urbanism and uh, minimalism and people uh, trying to be environmentally uh, friendly while still uh, growing um, our economy. At the same time, it's led to uh, things like gentrification, where uh, oftentimes poor residents have been displaced. Those poor residents who have been in those cities for 20, 30, 40 years um, and they feel like they have not been taken care of because uh, they've been in these cities. They have seen their services erode. And then when the money comes back, um, they are pushed out and they are not able to benefit um, from um, from money coming back to uh, to the inner cities. Uh, with urban or suburban sprawl, we get the growth of suburbanization in cities like the United States. Um we, we don't uh, really plan our suburbs a whole lot in terms of how they're going to uh, affect, uh, you know, commutes and how they're going to affect, affect congestion. We kind of, uh, we are reactionary. When something happens, we then change rather than planning things out in the first place. We don't have great public transit. Um, we do have a lot of congestion. 
on one of the videos we watched in class, uh, we saw that two and a half uh, people on average that commute from the suburbs spend two and a half percent of their entire lives just in the car commuting. Um, suburbs also have to deal with the fact that many people move to the suburbs to escape uh, the high taxes of places like the inner cities. But then as more people move, they needed more services. They needed more roads. They needed fire protection. They needed police. They needed schools and all those things. And all those things require taxes. And so people in the suburbs have started to see their taxes rise right along with people in the cities. Um, that's something you're never really going to escape. You're never going to escape taxes. It was Benjamin Franklin who said there are two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. Um, with urban sprawl, we've also started to see the rise in edge cities. Uh, again, uh, cities like Tyson's Corner would qualify as an edge city. Um, smart growth. Again, in European cities, we see that a lot more than we see it in the United States. Um, it's a way to maintain farmland. It's a way to cut down on congestion. Um, it's a way to uh, cut down on uh, emissions um, in terms of fighting global warming. Um, but again, a, a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, European cities evolved around transportation like the train and the bus, whereas U.S. cities uh, evolved around um, the automobile. Uh, even in uh, rural European settlements, they have clustered rural settlements where everyone lives in the town and then they walk out to work, whereas in U.S. Uh, rural settlements, people live on their homes, work, and they will commute into the town when they need to do that. Um, we talked a lot about central place theory, Chris Aller's central place theory that was based on the hexagons that kind of inter, um, interconnected and overlapped with one another. Obviously, the larger and more important the settlement, the larger the market area or hinterland um, of that place. Uh, the range then is the extent of those hexagons as how far people are willing to uh, drive to access or willing to go to access a service. So a range for a Harris Teeter is going to be much smaller than uh, the range of the Washington Nationals. And then the threshold is the minimum number of people needed to support that service. Uh, so again, it's something like uh, the Washington Nationals that has a you know 40,000 seat, uh, seat stadium. Um, they have a high range, but they also have a high threshold. They need a lot of people coming to their games, whereas Harris Teeter uh, doesn't have a high range um, because they have you know, so many people in such a close proximity to the grocery store already. Um, we also talked about uh, rank size versus primate city rule. Remember, with a rank size rule, the nth largest city is one over n, uh, the size of the largest city. Um, so... If a city like Chicago is the third largest city in the United States, it means that it is one third the size of New York. I think uh, maybe Philadelphia was the sixth largest city, so it would be one sixth the size of New York versus a primate city. In primate cities, um, they are more than twice the population of the next largest city in their country. So cities like Mexico City, uh, London in England, Paris in France, those were all the examples of primate cities. And again, that affects um, uh, it affects services. So in cities like the United States, in United States cities, um, we have services all over our country. We follow rank size rule. Um, we have nodes of uh, different industries uh, and different technology, uh, different sports and music and that sort of thing. Whereas in countries that have primate cities, a lot of times these services are skewed towards those primate cities. Um, the jobs are skewed towards those primate cities. Uh, the culture is skewed towards those primate cities, and sometimes the rest of the uh, of the country um, lacks a bit for some of those things. Uh, we talked about a city's economic base. We need to add the idea that non-basic industries um, 
are industries that uh, are within the settlement. Basic industries are industries that people uh, outside of the settlement buy, um, buy those products. And we talked about the gravity model. And again, this kind of falls in with central place theory and rank size rule as well. The idea that the larger a city or settlement is, the more likely it is to attract services, the more likely it is to attract people, um, the more likely it is to attract a tax base and that sort of thing. All right, so that takes us through the study guide. Um, I do want to take a couple minutes and look at your FRQs. So if you are on a B day, if you are fifth or sixth block, we are looking at the 2018 um, FRQ, which dealt with uh, had a picture of an old industrial warehouse in the city and said, resist gentrification, move back to the suburbs. Um, this is the older neighborhood shown in the picture is undergoing changes in its demographic profile as the existing built landscape is renovated. And we're talking about good things that uh, gentrification does, bad things that gentrification does, and how city governments can reduce the negative impacts of gentrification. Um, Obviously, uh, gentrification is bringing money uh, back to cities. It's revitalizing um, old buildings that have been vacant. Um, it's bringing arts and uh, amenities and restaurants and breweries and things like that back into inner cities and revitalizing that. It's making more people move downtown, which is going to reduce commuting, which is going to reduce greenhouse emissions. Um, but also, also you're going to push out uh, lower income people that have been in these cities for years. Um, oftentimes, it leads to uh, more segregation in cities, and sometimes it can uh, uh, lead to tensions between upper and lower class people. Um, sometimes it can lead to uh, racial and ethnic tensions uh, in those cities. And so governments can do things like um, they can uh, provide mixed use housing. They can provide mixed income housing um, so that, you know, people that are living in neighborhoods where you have $500,000 condos are also um, you know, just right around the block from uh, from public housing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so trying to uh, achieve a balance is one thing that governments can do to try to uh, reduce the negative impacts of gentrification. And then if you were on A-Day, uh, we were looking at the 2017 FRQ. Um, that one deals with something called new urbanism. In the last half of the 20th century, some U.S. cities experienced decline due to deindustrialization and the loss of population due to suburbanization to counteract the inner city decline. Urban planners have embraced new urbanism and mixed use development to attract residents back to cities. So two goals of new urbanism, again, the idea that you're going to live in a walkable city, you're going to have bike lanes, um, you're going to have jobs and uh, schools and restaurants and things like that that are located downtown in urban areas. Um, the difference between mixed use development and traditional zoning practices, traditional zoning, um, I always reference one of my favorite games growing up, uh, SimCity 2000 or SimCity 3000. And you zone certain things certain ways. So certain areas were industrial, certain areas were commercial, certain areas were um, residential, and there's no changing that. Uh, we can see that in Ashburn where if you go up to where, I can't remember what it's called, but where like Kava and Iron Chef and Whole Foods and Baker's Crest and all that is, that is definitely zoned commercial. Whereas if you flip over to Belmont Country Club right next to it, that is clearly zoned residential. Um, but if I go to One Loudon, that is mixed-use development. There is housing there, but there is also uh, restaurants and movie theaters and shopping and that sort of thing. Uh, two benefits of mixed-use development, development and promoting urban growth. Again, people can live where they work. It's going to uh, cut down on commuting and greenhouse gas emissions and that sort of thing. Um, people are uh, you know, going to uh, bring that money back into the cities. Um, rather than uh, rather than out in the, uh, in the suburbs, um, that's going to help with uh, 
bringing up the tax base for repairing uh, schools and bridges and roads and all that. Two criticisms of new urbanism. Um, again, some things that we talked about with the 2018 one, it's gonna displace lower income residents. Um, oftentimes, um, it is going to uh, more negatively impact uh, minority communities. Um, it, uh, it makes it difficult to integrate those uh, you know, different types of people. And so these problems that we have experienced uh, throughout um, our you know, class period, uh, there are always solutions, there are always problems, and those problems are, are always changing. And so we're always looking to find more creative solutions to deal with them. All right, so let's wrap it at that. We are right about 20 or 21 minutes. Um, if you're still listening, I really appreciate you guys taking this class. Um, it's been a really, really fun year for me. I hope you have learned a little bit. I hope you guys have a great summer. Uh, good luck on this final test. And uh, we will wrap it at that. Thanks.